Fáilte. Welcome to this third episode of The Language Question, Keshnatangan, a conversation about the Irish language and its history for anyone curious about their relationship with it and its role in our identity. Our guest in this episode is Tyg McDonagon. Tyg is the author of the Irish language novel Madame Nazar, among many other works, talents and accomplishments. While this interview was recorded in late 22, it seems fitting that we are now first airing it in March 2023, at a point when Madame Lazar is being published in Estonian, having been translated by Indrek Eels. This chimes perfectly with the views that Tyg shares with us on his vision for the language and its part in his identity as part of a vibrant modern European one carrying forward a tradition that is equally important to him. As always, I would really appreciate your feedback and would be eternally grateful if you would follow, rate and review the show. Please also be sure to sign up at thelanguagequestion.com forward slash resources to get your free valuable learning resources and to ensure that you stay up to date with upcoming episodes, guests and to receive exclusive content. Anyhow, here goes with this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Gumwina tu sultas. Tyg McDonagon is a celebrated musician, writer and publisher. He is an award-winning screenwriter and the author of Misha Raftery on Fyodor Fuckel, which won the Grada Mohuluan in 2015. His novel, Madame Lazar, won Irish Book of the Year in the Irish Book Awards 2021, and he is the founder and director of the Irish language publishing house, Futa Fata. Well, we are so delighted to have you here with us today, uh, Taig. What I would like to do first, if it's okay with you, is maybe go back to the start and your relationship with the Irish language, where that began in terms of growing up and so on. Uh, and maybe we might just uh, explore your, your history with the language from there. Yeah, sure. Uh, I grew up in East Mayo, in uh, English-speaking East Mayo, but I think I even have to qualify that uh, and say that oh, even though English is my first language, that it was a flavor of English that was very... Um, much influenced by the Irish language because in my part of uh, the west of Ireland, uh, the Irish language had been abandoned in the relatively recent past. Uh, And that happened, I suppose, gradually. It it started probably in the years after the the Great Famine of the 1840s when Irish-speaking Ireland, which was... A fairly substantial population at the time, like at the beginning of the twentieth of the nineteenth century, there were four million native speakers on the island of Ireland. And, um, the you know the the disaster of the of the Great Famine got rid of almost a million of them who, who died uh, in the famine, and a million other people emigrated fairly soon after the famine. A lot of them were Irish speakers, and in the years that followed, that pattern continued and, and was well-established. And so there was a hemorrhaging of the Irish-language, Irish-speaking population. So, and then th- those that were left were focusing on preparing their children for emigration. And that was really one of the reasons why people decided to abandon the language, because I think their spirits had been broken. Um, and I think they, they really bought into that kind of you know, colony, colonization kind of uh, agenda that happened to so many peoples in so many places all over the globe. This idea that, you know, that the colonizer was the was the civilized voice in the world, 
that the the language of the colonizer was uh, much more superior and much more intellectually rigorous and all that and that the language spoken by the people who were abandoning their culture was inferior was of of no cultural significance and was actually if anything um going to be a problem and 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 uh you know a difficulty for them in in kind of making their way and in, in what was becoming the modern world and uh when i was young i i got very interested in the irish language as a teenager and i remember i there was an old woman who lived next door to us um who i was always friendly with from my very early age and i used to call and visit her and when i got interested in irish she began to kind of open up to me about her feelings about irish which was interesting um and she had a kind of a she had a certain kind of a longing for it in a certain way. And she just, I think there were certain things she wanted to say out loud to me, but she had never met anybody else who, who was interested in hearing this stuff. But I remember particularly one kind of story she told me about the old people. Um, so I suppose her father, grandfather's generation, perhaps. And the grandfather's generation would definitely have been native speakers of that old lady. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said that the old people used to say they had this phrase uh, in East Mayo, what is now, um, you know, an extinct East Mayo dialect. They would which would be kind of in the, the Irish I speak now would be which is the, it's, it's a nonsense kind of a phrase. It means a hound at a raw egg. But the reason that whoever imagined that phrase put it together it was kind of like, this isn't a language, it's kind of grunting, you know, like, I mean, in Egypt with things like that. And that was really kind of a, re- a revelation for me. I remember, like, I was quite young, you know, I was about 16 or 17 when I heard that story. And it stayed with me, you know, that this was, this was a way that the, the people had kind of assaulted themselves nearly into, you know, culturally. They, they, they were denigrating their own language. Correct. Yeah, they were. And I think that that's what, that's what happen, happens a lot to colonized people, that they, they just kind of are, um, they are persuaded that, you know, the language of their own people is inferior. And, and then when they abandon it, this is, the, this is the worst thing that happens. It's not just a question of, you know, one generation calls, uh, you know, an, an animal that gives milk bull, and the next generation calls it cow. There's an awful lot more to it than that. You know, it's, it's, it's not only a language in terms of sounds that represent uh, objects and things and ideas. It's also, a, a language is like a, it's like a, a, you know, a bag of goodies. You know, it's, it's, a, it's the repository of memory of, of a culture that goes back generations and generations. So when they abandoned the Irish language, not only did they abandon the words, and, and everything that goes with speaking the language. They also abandoned, um, you know, the traditional rhymes that the language contained that did not survive the language change. They abandoned the songs. They abandoned the stories. They abandoned the traditional um, healing incantations, for example. They, ab- they abandoned uh, a, a, a an ancient system of patronymic naming, which still exists in the Gaeltacht, like my my uh, my neighbor down the road here in in um on Spidel where I live 
is officially known as Sean O'Nyachton. He was a, an MEP at one time, very, very nice neighbor. Um, but a, a lot of people around here would know him as Seanine Jojani. And, and and that is a patronymic system which goes, it's, it, it dates back to pre-Norman times because it was the Normans who introduced family surnames to Ireland. Before that, you had that, that system of, you know, the individual's name, often the father or possibly the mother's name, and then the grandfather or the grandmother's name. And so, and that's how people were identified. And the two systems live on side by side in Gaeltha. Um, but in, in English-speaking Ireland, that system would also have been abandoned quite a lot. Um, so th- also the names of, uh, the names of you know, flora and fauna uh, and, and the particular kind of folklore about, around you know, those creatures of the earth which, which we, you know, we share our existence. Uh, so all that stuff, and it was all kind of thrown away by people who had you know, led themselves to believe that the language they were speaking was rubbish. And uh, I have always felt that that's uh, a tragic thing. And I suppose in my in my creative life, I have always kind of tried to um, to do something about it. Uh, and, and not to, I've never been a kind of a, I suppose, an Irish language activist that much in terms of, you know, I, I don't really get involved that much in kind of, you know, um, uh, what would you call it? Um, you know, protests and that kind of thing. But I suppose what my, I feel my input is on the cultural plane, you know, that I have been involved in music and I've been involved in, in, in the book world and the TV world and so forth. And that's kind of my contribution. And I think that's the kind of the best job that I can do in this, in this area. And it's not just, a, it's not just like a, I'm doing this for the Irish language. It's also that, you know, I suppose I got to the certain point in my, in my life where, it just was such a natural thing that I'm just I happen to be a I happen to be a creative person and I happen to work in Irish and and the work is more important in a certain way. I because I, I want to come to it to, to all of that, but I'm just so fascinated by that interaction with that uh, that that neighbor of yours that you had as a, as a, as a teenager. And I mean, just first of all, those conversations would they have been Asquelga? No, 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 they wouldn't. No, she 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 wouldn't have been a fluent Irish speaker. I'd say she would probably understand a bit like my own grandmother did. She would have a lot of residual vocabulary in Irish, like um, like my parents did and do. Uh, like, um, you know, the, a lot of the neighbours, like the people who, who, who have lived all their lives in Mayo, you know, uh, the older generation would certainly have a lot of those words that, uh, you know, there never was an English equivalent for us, so they just, they just stuck to the Irish word. And a lot of structures, sentence structures as well. Um, oh, oh, completely. The idiom of, of, of Hiberno-Irish. I mean, I would, we would see the same thing here in, in, in West Cork very much indeed. And, and so at home, was, 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 was there any element of Irish or was that a thing? Not really, no. no. Um, well, I was sent to the Gaeltacht as, um, I suppose, maybe 16-year-old, 15, 16-year-old, 16-year-old, I think, uh, to Cornamona, which is just across the, the border in County Galway. So it wasn't even that far away from where I grew up. And it was it was a slightly different part of the country. It was a lot more mountainy and hilly, um, but essentially it was the same place, you know. Uh, and that's kind of what struck me. It wasn't like a, a city kid who was, you know, sent out into the country and for the first time in his life was kind of you know breathing clean air. Now, it wasn't, you know, th- this was my natural habitat, as it were. I was a rural, I was a rural kid, but but 
when I was there and kind of, you know, walking the roads back and over to the school where the, the, the classes were going on and the various activities, you know, you'd be meeting these kind of old fellas on bikes and, you know, people making hay and, you know, whatever, you know, that rural life of that time and people would stop to talk to you and all, and all this. And they were all speaking Irish. And I, I, I suppose I, I just said, you know, if things had turned out a different way, this is the way it would be at home as well. I, that was a powerful thing for me, and that was. And were you were you conscious of that as a young person? Yeah, I was. I suppose I was. Well, I suppose I became after that those few weeks in in Cornamona, and um, I became more conscious of it. And I, I returned home, and I just. Uh, I suppose I just decided to make it my business to become fluent in Irish and to be as to be able to speak it as well as those people that I had met, who were, you know, they were ordinary country people but they they could speak two languages and that to me was very impressive i was also i suppose interested in general languages i loved french at school and i just love that kind of the way a language just opens another world to you and and i have continued to be interested in 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 french all my life um so yeah that i suppose it's 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 a broader interest for me language and and the, the various little connections you find between words and that has always been a fascination for me. And then how did that evolve? That? So you became inspired from, from what I hear from you in your interactions with the quilt, with your, your interactions with, with, with your neighbours, just the language became something of, of deep interest to you. And and how did that then, because obviously I think would, would it have been music would have been your first creative outlet as you were growing up or? That's correct. Yeah. Music. You, yeah, that's exactly right. So I was I got interested in music. I, I became very interested in the music of Clonet, for example, who were a band from Donegal, a kind of a folky band, kind of a, a hippie kind of an image they had that was very appealing and seemed very cool and interesting. And, and they're Irish even though their Irish was quite exotic to me because it was Donegal Irish. And, you know, lots of people Lots of people you hear, oh, you know, that's the thing about Irish, all the different dialects. But, but to me, that was actually an attraction, you know, because like it didn't sound like the Irish who spoke at school and it sounded, but it sounded so authentic. And that was the same thing, as, uh, you know, when I spoke to native speakers, it was different from the sort of Irish you'd hear from a teacher. But it, you just knew that it was so natural and, and authentic that that was just the way they spoke. And uh, so it was the same thing with the songs. So I became really just interested in songs. I was interested in songs in English at the time and folks, folk music in general. I, was, I, I loved it all and we used to go to folk festivals. And so it was, you know, I was singing more, I was singing in English as well a lot. So it wasn't, I didn't become a, like a very purist kind of militant, um, nothing but Irish kind of guy. I, I just, just seemed, it just seemed to be a lovely, you know, um, parallel thing that I could you know, I could have in my life, and uh, I suppose I still feel like that, to be honest with you. Hmm. And then, would, would, would it have been the establishment of of, of TG Cahar? Would that have been a, a kind of a significant? Because I think screenwriting is something that you 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 you've, you've done extensively over many years uh, as part of that. How did that unfold? Well, that was okay. So there were a few few steps. So then, when I left, uh, I left secondary school. I decided to become a primary school teacher. Um, I did that. I got a job, and, and when I went to Dublin, I I just connected with an Irish-speaking kind of um, network, as it were, 
uh, which was also kind of very much connected with music. And um, I just spoke a lot of Irish in Dublin, I suppose, but I became more fluent. And uh, so then by, by the, the, it was a three-year course that time, I applied for jobs uh, in a in school. Like I, I worked in a school for a few years in Leakslip in County Kildare. And around that time, just as almost one of those random happy occurrences that happens in, in life, uh, I was approached to uh, have a go at becoming a TV presenter with uh, a young a, a program for very young children called Zilino Daus. And the reason that happened was that I was teaching, uh, at that time, I was teaching junior infants in this school in Leakslip. And I suppose there weren't that many young men teaching junior infants. There still aren't. There aren't many men full stop teaching in primary school in Ireland, which I think is a real a real problem that nobody seems to talk about. But I think it's I think it's something that needs to be addressed. The, the gender balance in primary school and secondary school, but certainly in primary school. Anyway, I was uh, I was I was teaching junior infants, which was unusual, and uh, I was spotted as it were by this woman who uh, she was kind of an advisor for this TV show, and she also used to work with the the Nienry, you know, the play schools. And there was a play school in the school. She was out of the school, she spotted me with my junior infants, and uh, and her son knew me. And uh, so between one thing and another, uh, I suddenly got this phone call out of the blue from this producer in, in RTE, and it was really it was like kind of like for me at the time, it's like getting a call from the White House or something, you know. The, <laughs> There was somebody in RTE who wanted to kind of... This is the big break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well, it seems such, a, such a, a random and weird thing to happen. Yeah. But anyway, I went out to RTE and I had to go and they were duly happy with me. And uh, so I did that for a few summers. Um, I used to record these TV shows and I also got the chance to write as well, which I, I, I enjoyed very much, to write stories for the programme. And that was my first kind of, I suppose... Uh, professional engagement as a, as a writer of any description. I was paid for writing these stories and it, that was, it was a nice thing to happen. So then I, uh, I, I got a book published around then. I, I, I got a book published by Ngoom, which was an adaptation of a, a Coo Holland story called Flavrikou. Uh, that was the first book that was published. And uh, then a few years later, I went full-time with RT, I left the teaching behind me and I went and worked in RT as a presenter reporter on a program. It wasn't a children's program. It was it was a program, um, program for adults called Coursey and it was a kind of a catch-all current affairs stroke features stroke kind of cultural program. And I did that for 13 years. And for the last five years of that period, uh, the program was kind of broken into its constituent parts, and this this were the the years leading up to the to uh, TG Carr going on the air, and uh, it, it was a program called Cursi Alina, which was an arts program, and I was one of the, of the presenters on that presenter report, and I did that for five years, and that was really a lot of fun, and it was also kind of where I I, I really felt comfortable, you know, it was that kind of intersection of Irish language and culture and I suppose that's where I've always kind of made my made my uh, my living in a way um since for yeah since all those years yeah when did you make the decision to move to to live in the Gaeltacht 
Well, uh, around this time, we we had been living in, uh, we were married, had uh, three children at this stage. We were living in uh, Inchicore in Dublin, and we met some fantastic people there, and we had a nice house. But um, so there were a lot of positives to it. But there were there were certain there were certain there were challenges as well. It was a a difficult uh, area to live in in ways. There were a lot of um, social problems. There was a, a you know significant drug problem in the area, and I suppose uh, I always loved the idea of you know the children growing up in the west of Ireland. So I got a, an opportunity to leave RT. You know, it was a, looking back, it was a big gamble, a brave a stroke, foolhardy choice, um, because I was then at this at at that stage, I was kind of walking away from my second kind of. Uh, you know, a job for life, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but anyway, uh, that's what I did. And my wife very kindly, uh, you know, supported me in it. And we moved to the west of Ireland. Another child was born. And uh, I, I was working initially as a script editor with, with uh, Russ Naroon, which is a, it's a, it's a soap. And uh, so I had been before that, I had begun to, to work on scripts i was developing a a tv show for young children which was based on a cd for children i had made so there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on and uh i i stayed with us and for a while and then i went freelance and i started to work more with a company called telegail and out of that came a a series called afric which was a, a kind of a teen drama live action drama which we did a few seasons of, which was really great fun. And I was working with a fantastic uh, director called Paul Mercier, who still lives here in Connemara. And he, he worked with me as well as script editor on that show. So I learned an awful lot from Paul about story and about um, screenwriting and about just the, the general nuts and bolts of, 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 of I suppose, visual storytelling um, and dramatic storytelling. And, uh, you know, it was kind of learning by doing. So it was, it was great. That was kind of, that's one of the fantastic things in a certain way about the Irish language is that, you know, because the pool is smaller, you know, sometimes you get these really exciting opportunities that you would find it more difficult to get in English, maybe. And uh, so that that was kind of very much the case with, with, with Afric. And uh, the, so I'd done that for a while and that was fun. But I suppose the only thing was that, you know, we had four children wife was a was a, working as a primary school teacher and we just needed you know I, I felt I needed regular income I wanted to be a kind of a responsible responsible dad as well as a you know a freelance artist and um, so I began to look at the possibility of going into publishing because i had done a few once-off projects up until then I had done I had made some CDs for children I had made two albums for kind of I suppose young adults before that uh, so I made some CDs for children of songs I'd written for in Irish for children and I began to think of you know making sort of books and CDs and that's what I started to do and that's where the Fata the little cottage industry publishing house began and over the years that developed I started going to the Bologna book fair I started finding books to uh, translate into Irish I started working with other writers and illustrators to um, to originate original books, um, started going back out to places like 
Bologna Book Fair and Frankfurt Book Fair and selling those rights abroad. So selling the rights of original Irish books to like China and, and Korea and uh, something like 14 or 15 languages now the, those books have found their way into, you know, not every single one in every single language, but, you know, there's a kind of range, of range of books and a range of languages. And that's always been, that's been like a real kind of interesting thing to do uh, because I've always seen the Irish language in that broader context, you know, that why couldn't it be a world language? Well, well, this is something that I have really wanted to kind of come to in talking to you. And I want to just maybe come come to that in, in, in a little bit in, in a moment because of, um, I think that really ties in, Madam, it struck me very deeply in reading Madame Lazard that that was, that was, that there was a, that was a contextual element of, 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 of how you approach the language in that novel. But, just in relation to Fudafata, because I think it's like this is just 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 I found this fascinating since I started um, thinking about it. I mean, you know, you, you've created this publishing house. You started it off. You, you described it as a cottage industry, but I mean, it's 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 a phenomenal um, business. But you, you must, through that, have a great sense of if you like the state of the language in terms of how it's consumed, particularly for for the, the, the particularly because a lot of children's books are being published, and. How do you feel, or does, do you have any sense of just, just how, you know, what the, the 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 state or development of the language is like in terms of how you see um, books and so on being consumed by young people? Um, and 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 have you any thoughts on that? I do. Yeah, I I think that things are improving. I think that uh, I think that I think Irish in in general as a as a sport, a, you know, a, a strand of culture, cultural life in Ireland has become a lot more uh, mainstream in in recent years. Um, I think there's a, there is a kind of a, a certain longing for it. If you look at, you know, the success in English of books like Monaghan McGann, you know, uh, mm-hmm. those books are really uh, popular. I see he has another one just out now. Um, the the success of Derin Griffith's book about quite a you know quite an obscure topic in a way it's about the the poem uh, Queen Artillera written by Eileen Dovney Connell and that book that book was just hugely popular and hugely the, the of, ghost in the throat is it ghost or, in the throat uh, yeah, 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 ghost yeah. In the throat yeah that was just that's really it won outright the book of the year at the Irish book awards um it's so and there was like this there is a longing there i think in the irish people for for this 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 language that that was lost by the majority of the population, and you can see that as well in uh, the growth of the Gaelscale movement. Um, it, you know, I think about eight percent of the school-going population go to these immersion schools, where they where you know all the, in the in the twenty-six counties. And I don't quite have the the statistics for further north for the north north of the border, but I do know that. They're becoming more popular there as well, uh, but the desire, the the the, the expressed uh, desire of the populations, about twenty three percent of people would ideally like their children to go to a girls' school, um, and the the government has committed to you know work towards achieving that number over over a period of time, um, and you can see that in the consumption of books and in the consumption and the interest in in children's books in bookshops and. The openness, the increasing openness of booksellers to books in the Irish language, and the, so it's all kind of, it's all, uh, it's all going in a good direction. Cer- certainly in terms of children's books, 
I think books for adults are a bit more challenging, but I think there is a lot of potential there as well. And certainly you mentioned my novel, Madame Lazare, which came out, you know, roughly around this time last year. And uh, I think when you think of the of the size of the of the you know the core population of Irish speakers, the seventy five thousand people or so who speak it as a you know as a primary language in their lives every day in the home, and then there's probably another hundred and fifty thousand who speak it quite fluently and but would speak it you know less than daily, and then there's a bigger group again who speak it you know fairly well, um, but since the book was published, it has sold 2,000 copies, which is not Harry Potter by any means, but it's it's very respectable. And I know from my interactions with, with uh, you know, countries here in Europe who would have a much, much bigger population with millions of people in their in their country or in their, in their you know, their language community in countries like, you know... Serbia and Bulgaria and places like that and uh, to sell 2,000 copies of a novel in in a language that may be spoken between between 6 and 10 million people in a lot of those countries is you know a significant um, achievement so so it's it's you know when when you look at it in context it it's very very encouraging uh, and uh, you know so that's that's something I kind of like to do a bit more of um, well, I mean, first of all, I, I have to say, I, I, I found that novel just, it was a huge breakthrough for me because I I'm, have, have been a, somebody returning to the language, learning the language and have found, you know, my ability to consume, you know, literature in the language has been very, very limited. Um, and again, Madame Lazare spent a lot of time <laughs> with a dictionary working through it, so my, my progress would have been slow. But I found that I, I found it just uh, it was an, it was an extraordinary breakthrough for me to be able to read it. And first of all, I, I just thought that the, the, I just the, you know the, the, the actual story itself was 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 just uh, extremely um, oh I just I just loved it. Um, but um, so so but but it's a thing that first of all it must have been it struck me as a very um, brave decision to take to decide to actually commit to writing a novel in, in, in the Irish language for, for, for the reasons that you mentioned in terms of the fact that the audience that is there is 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 is, is, is quite small and I mean was that ever a factor in your head in terms of when you sat down to do it um I'll tell you it, it it's an interesting thing um it was an awful lot of that project writing that novel was it was quite a personal thing for me because I had spent quite a lot of years writing uh, writing for the screen in in various just tv um, written some film scripts and various things um and i've learned a lot in that area and this the, there's there's a lot i love about screenwriting but as well as that it's a very kind of it's a very collaborative process and it's also a very it's a very money related process as well and it has and at writing a script has all sorts of kind of practical ramifications so for example you might have a you might have a character who's like driving around the country and then the the actor who's cast can't drive you know so then so then you know you have to have kind of kind of stand-ins and you know there have to be all, <laughs> all sorts of practical kind of um changes made to, to make that work i'm not saying that has ever happened to me but that i'm just kind of painting a picture for you um 
so it's it's you know then you know you might have a kind of a, a a scene that really it's really crucial that it happens at night and uh you know i suppose this happens in in pro- probably you know uh budgets budgets which are on the lower end of the spectrum you know just maybe there mightn't be the budget to to, to shoot that at night you know so they wanted to shoot it in a you know in a hotel room or something and and so what i'm saying is that uh screenwriting has there are a lot of um there are a lot of compromises you have to make uh and as well as that there are a lot of people there are a lot of kind of people who 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 have to tick boxes around what you've written you know so you have a lot of kind of voices uh, telling you, you know, it should be like this or it should be like that or it should be like the other. Uh, and a novel is, is it's a simpler kind of um, beast in a way because the, uh, you know, the, the technology as it were is much simpler. You're, it's just kind of getting words down on the page. And then inside the reader's head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You don't have to work with a camera, cameraman or woman. Uh, you don't have to work with an art director or any of those things, uh, and also when you're writing a script, you're you're actually it's very it's very kind of restricted. What you can't really you can't explain, you know, how the the character is looking around the room or or how they're moving or any you can't put in any of that stuff because that's the actor's job, and the actor should be able to read your words, read your dialogue, read your very kind of minimalist. Uh, descriptions of the the space and so forth and be able to give all that stuff because that's their art and and that's and rightly so so as a novelist you get to do that as well you get to be the actor as well in a certain way so i just wanted to i wanted to work in that form i wanted to um i wanted to have all that kind of uh you know um uh, artistic freedom in a certain way. So that was really what I wanted to do. And I wanted to see if I could do it. And so I would just kind of get up early, like uh, in the morning, and I would just sit down for a few hours and I would belt at this thing. And it took me, you know, a, a number of years t- to do it. I would rewrite on, you know, I'd be going to Dublin for some something or other, and I'd, I just got a, a set of, you know, noise uh, cancelling headphones, and I would just sit there for two hours in the train, very happily rewriting something, and and, and chipped away, and I got through it. I worked with a few editors because I, I I've always been very, you know, despite what I just said, I suppose I've always been very uh, comfortable working with editors and interested in their feedback and interested in learning from them. So I was so you know I did that, and then and then the time came to. To let the thing go and 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 to publish it, and uh, so it was very heartening to you know to get all the positive reactions that it did get, and it also kind of proved to me, I suppose, that there is a, like a a respectable market for contemporary fiction in Irish. I mean, it exists already. There are a lot lots of other people besides me writing contemporary fiction in Irish, and also historical fiction, and all sorts of different types of fiction. But uh, I suppose as just becoming a part of that community. I, I just felt, you know, this is this is something that kind of works. Well, certainly as 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 a, as a reader, still 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 one that is only learning, unfortunately. But 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 as a reader, I just have to say thank you because for me, like to be able to engage with modern literature in the language, it 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 gives it such a. I mean, because I mean, obviously, you want to go back and experience the the older and traditional literature and so on, and that has its own kind of different challenges and different. There's different 
aspects to all of that. But you know, it, it was just such a, 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 a joy to be able to to to, if you like, use a language that you hear all the time as a you know this dead language or dying language or whatever, and then suddenly you're reading this 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 modern work of European uh, literature in in the languages is is is, is oh, for me it was it was a really really um, fantastic experience. But talk to me about I mean. In, in, in the book, I mean, first of all, there's there's a Europe that European dimension to it, which is which is I mean, you have it set across various European locations, and of course, I don't want to get into spoiler alerts in relation to the book, whatever. But you have it 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 it, it spreads across the history of 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 twentieth century Europe and 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 the post since the war, um, and then you have that then beautifully wedded to your the the emergence of the story from. From from Inish Moore and 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 then again tying into to the phenomenon that is the Irish um, language translators working in in, in Brussels and, and 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 that new dimension of of, of 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 the Irish language experience that 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 there's a growth area for for so many people. Um, how did all that just evolve in your in, in, in as you were as you were writing it? Well, it evolved slowly and it evolved. Um, yeah, it, it was a question of trial and error, really. Um, it, it was, it just one kind of strand led to the other. Um, I knew I, I had a, I had a character. It was based on a, an anecdote. My, my father told me, uh, in about this man in our part of the world in County Mayo, who he was kind of coming to the end of his days around, around maybe the 1920s or 1930s. And at the end of his life, uh, even though he had always been, you know, uh, outwardly an Irish, an English speaker, spoken Irish to his his wife and his family and probably his grandchildren. At the end of his life, he became, you know, he succumbed to some form of dementia and he lost really the the, um, the ability to communicate, um, you know, uh, in, a, in a cogent way with people. But he continued to speak. But while he was speaking at the end of his life, maybe the last six months of his life, was all in Irish. And he had really had never spoken Irish all his life. Um, his wife had never heard him speak Irish. Uh, and, uh, you know, that this was surprising. And this kind of story lived on. And, and my dad told me about it. And uh, I was fascinated by that, by that, that uh, anecdote. And... I suppose, having put it in context, uh, what I've told you earlier, you can see how, you know, emotionally that that really struck a chord with me. And I just wanted to do something with it. And I had written this other book about Raftery, who was from my part of County Mayo. And he was a, he was a wonderful uh, a poet and songwriter whose songs are still sung, um, you know, here in Connemara, where I live. And uh, I had really enjoyed working on that that uh, project just kind of escaping into something big like that and just, you know, getting into that world. And I wanted to do that again. And I decided to try a novel for the other reasons I told you that I wanted to, you know, write something to have more control over it. So, uh, so off I went and I just began on, with that little uh, anecdote. I decided that the character I was going to write about was a woman that she had been born as an Irish speaker in a, in a you know, a, in a, an intensely Irish speaking world, like, and I decided that the Iron Isles would be a good choice and that she, for some reason, something terrible had happened and that she she left under a kind of a cloud and ended up in another place which was completely alien to her and that for the rest of her life, she kind of 
pretended that she was somebody else from a completely different background. She completely sort of suppressed her her memory of her her background in in the Iron Islands, of her cultural background, um, and of the language with which she grew up. And uh, so, in a certain way, uh, you could almost see that the character was nearly like the Irish language itself. Do you know, in certain way. Um, uh, but that's not really a significant kind of statement in the book. That's just kind of maybe a little echo there in the back. But uh, yeah, so so then so then I had this character who had left the Iron Islands and she ended up in Paris. And then and then when she grew old, this same thing happened to her as that this man that my dad told me about that she was losing the ability to to kind of communicate in French. But this other stuff was coming out. And uh, she had re- assumed an identity. She had like, passed herself off as a, a Jewish woman from originally from the north of Europe, from Estonia. And that, that was the story that her, her granddaughter had always learned. Her granddaughter, uh, they had a close but difficult relationship. And because the granddaughter had been raised by her grandparents. And so the granddaughter is, is an equally important person in the, in, the, in the story. So you have Madame Lazar, who's this woman who was originally from the Iron Islands. Um, but that's a big, big secret. And then Lavana, who was her granddaughter, who grew up in a Jewish community, a Jewish family, um, raised by Hannah, her grandmother, and by uh, Hannah's uh, husband, Samuel. And... Uh, so that's kind of those were the elements I was dealing with, and so the 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 translator, the Irish translator who was working in in, in the European Commission, he was a kind of a bridge between the two worlds, and so he was the person who was able to kind of help Lavana, you know, understand these kind of clues that were emerging from the old woman's memory over time, and then I also I I, I admire books that are kind of like polyphonic, you know, that you have each chapter is kind of it's not in the first person uh voice but in the third person you know it's they follow very closely the the view of one character so that's that's the kind of structure that's the the approach i did when i was re- writing the book um and i i enjoy that kind of thing so i i took the opportunity to go back and forward in time so some of the stuff is based in like the recent past in paris and in brussels and then there are chunks of it which are based in the 1930s, 1940s in the Iron Islands. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love also there's, there's, there's a beautiful um, critical moment in the book that turns on a, on a, on a, on a very subtle um, uh, distinction of uh, pronunciation of, of, of a particular word, even, yeah. between, even between two, two, two very closely geographically located areas. And now immediately um, uh, uh, one person would know what, that, that person must have come from there because that's the way they pronounce that particular word, yeah. and it's it's, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful beautiful connection. Um, but the something that that just struck me really, and and is is that you, and I want to just maybe tie back to to, to Raftery as well in a moment. But just the the, the national um, folklore collection seems to me to be kind of deeply sort of a lot of what's 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 in the book seems 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 to come from that. Is is that correct? Um, well, not necessarily directly, but maybe just to further 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 listeners, we'll explain that a little bit. So, uh, so some of the some of the story is set in 1937, which was this is in 
young Madame Lazar's youth when her name was Murat Niyuran and she was a she was an island child um from from Orin, the biggest of the of the three uh, Aran Islands. And uh, she was she was she was raised by a widowed father um who was a storyteller and he uh his storytelling was of of great interest and great pride to this little girl who was her herself. Uh, you could see that she she also had a talent for this, for memory and for uh, collecting these stories that she had picked up from her dad. And this is something that was intensely interesting to her. And she also, I suppose, you see over the various chapters that she has uh, an ambition to be herself a storyteller one day to be a kind of a repository of 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 the memory of her people and um a, a, you know a cruel kind of twist of fate uh uh you know uh, means that that doesn't actually happen in the end so that so i suppose the big the big kind of questions in the book are they're about memory and they're about identity and about the relationship of memory with identity, and about, um, I suppose, you know, religious belief. And I, I'm very interested in religious religious belief and religious ritual. I, I, I grew up in quite a religious home. Uh, I wouldn't consider myself religious now. I, I, I wouldn't consider myself. Uh, you know, a believer, but it's still something that is a lot of interest to me. And uh, so as the book developed, and I really, it's a strange thing, I didn't see this coming, but it kind of emerged over time in the in the, in the the writing and the storytelling that uh, the religious kind of belief and, and the, the the grasp that the, the young child had on, on the sort of folkloric Catholicism that she was growing up with, um, I wanted to write about that because I just wanted to, I suppose, draw on my own memories of my understanding of how the whole thing worked when I was a child. You know, like, um, you know, this world, heaven, hell, purgatory, this whole kind of, you know, organic kind of uh, cosmic system that was being proposed by Catholic religion. And also the kind of the the pantheistic kind of nature of Catholicism, you know, that you have all these different saints and they're all like gods and goddesses in their own right. And but 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 again, and the stories that that are being told, I mean, there there there's these 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 wonderful tales involving, you know, Christ in various different scenarios under limpid shells and 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 and, and things like this. And 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 then of course Mairead is, is 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 writing these and recording these, and then she comes into a very stark kind of interaction with the the the, the priest because this the, the way in which she is describing these recording these stories is is considered um, you know blasphemous, I think, in terms of how how he reacts to that. Yeah, it was and, the teacher. It was the teacher actually who. Oh, uh, teacher, sorry, my apologies. Yeah, yeah, because the priest was actually that that was kind of something I wanted to do with with the with the priest was the priest was actually quite supportive because he he had been a, he comes upon her after so my apologies yes that he had been a missionary out in Africa so he had a much yeah. broader view i think he had a broader cultural view that 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 was what i wanted to say with that character he had he had seen you know he had seen kind of uh, indigenous people in other in other places in africa and he had he had had that kind of broadness of vision that you know that this faith that of which he was the representative 
could could include all these elements, including including this I this these folkloric beliefs that Little Murad had that you know that uh, the reason that a limpet you know a particular type of seashell can stick to a rock is because of something that happened which involved Jesus Christ uh, being chased by the Jews one day and he you know he performed a miracle and made himself tiny and went in, in under the limpet's shell. And then from that day on, as a reward for the for the cooperation of the limpet, the limpet has since been able to stick itself to the rock. And there are lots of those stories in the tradition. And they're, they're the little kind of human kind of imaginings of a, a, a fairly, you know, illiterate or pre-literate society because Catholicism generally did not insist on people learning to read the Bible. And this would make us like very different from the Welsh, for example, you know, as, as a culture. There, there is a much more strongly established literary and literate culture in the Welsh language because of the Reformation and of the role of the Methodist um, religion in uh, Wales and the fact that, you know, the language was, uh, the, the, the Bible was uh, translated to Welsh and it was read and read and reread by the people so that they could, they could read, you know, going back generations and generations, they could read fluently in Welsh. And they also had this extra formal kind of biblical register in their, in their language, which was, a, a, you know, an extra kind of uh, corner, I suppose, of, 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 of their linguistic kind of, realm in wales that we didn't have as catholics here because because the bible was not read and they would have had it in scotland as well in in, in the protestant islands of, of scotland where uh, the, the gaelic or gaelic language would have been re read uh, by the people and it was very much an important part of the religion catholicism doesn't doesn't depend on that catholicism is much more centralist it kind of all comes down from the pope who kind of, you know, down through the cardinals, through the bishops, to the priests and the and the curates, to the people. And uh, it doesn't involve the people actually reading and having and thinking for themselves that much. And uh, so that gives the people an awful lot of space to for imagination and to come up with their own kind of ideas, uh, especially people who, you know, there wasn't much else going on in their lives, you know. So there was, there was, there was, you know, there was no television, no radio. That's what I mean by that. There was no, you know, there were there weren't that many, uh, you know, uh, outlets for their imagination, and 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 folklore filled that void, and that's the importance of folklore in that kind of in that culture. And it's you know there are elements of that of that of that oral tradition which are still alive and well uh, in this area where I live, um, you know, in terms of song and all that. Completely, and and that, that oral tradition is something that is, is 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 so critically important because, as you say, the um there was there was, well, we we have the the the, the Irish manuscripts, but that was a very very small community that could actually read or write any of that. So so literacy as a, as a thing, um, it was it was through English, I suppose, was 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 where literacy derived from most of the Irish population, and so the the the, the culture it seems has come down through that that oral tradition now raftery was a huge part of that and 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 maintaining that and maintaining that true song how how did how did you kind of what what drew you to that and because that was a huge project for you with the the, the Misha raftery and Fyodor Fockel and, and and then i think the, the, the subsequent film yeah i was it was actually the film that came first um oh i see 
I grew, well, I grew up in East Mayo, and that's where Raftery was from. So I became aware of the existence of Raftery when I was a teenager, when I went to the secondary school in Kajamaq, which is about five miles from where I grew up. And uh, the Kajamaq people and, and the surrounding area were very, very proud of Raftery. And uh, time I was going to secondary school, there was there was an annual Aiksha, an annual festival about Raftery in the Irish language. Um which would have been a fairly kind of you know niche interest in at that point, but but it was there, and uh, you know there was a school magazine and there was always you know an article at least one article about a raftery, so I kind of came interested in him. I I, I got to know a few of his songs. Uh, there were a few of his songs on the intercert and leaving cert at the time, so it was it was this was a kind of a this was a like a cultural figure from my own place. Uh, there was nobody from who had written in English who was a cultural figure from my own place who, who was of national importance and was on the you know on the school course. So I I I always thought the raftery was important and interesting. And then when I went to college, there was a, there was a play called um, I think it was called Misha Raftery and Phila. It was written by Christopher Flynn, and it was a kind of a it was uh, quite an adventurous play, but it had a lot of it had a lot of irony in it. It kind of it it uh, you know it it kind of juxtaposed the the very romantic view that the Anglo Irish people had of Raftery of this kind of you know spiritual wanderer who was going around, man, you know, writing his poems and the actual kind of real tough life of poverty and kind of hand-to-mouth existence and you know a certain level of drunkenness i would imagine as well that you know raft three actually lived his life so that was my first kind of you know i suppose meeting with a more real raft three and a more human raft three um and then i had written a few songs about him and uh i made an album called raft three and underground and a song called raft three and it's quite well well known um so then there was this wonderful director here uh, who's done a lot of great docudramas and all sorts of things for a teacher character called Sean the Coolon. And he wanted to do he he grew up in the Kilkiron Corner area of Connemara, which is a very a place which is especially rich in, in in traditional song. So he would know a lot about Raft Three and his people would. And he wanted to make this kind of docudrama and he approached me about writing the script. And we worked together on it, and that kind of gave me the opportunity to make to do more research about Raftery. I, I learned a lot of new things about him that I hadn't known previously, and to kind of really, I suppose, establish clearly in my mind the timeline of his life. You know about what he had done, where he had done, when he had done it, why he, and all that. Could you just give for, for those who may not be so familiar, just a very brief history, just in terms of where he, uh, just period of time in, in which he existed, and and just 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 for listeners. Okay, quickly. Uh, he was born in in 1779 uh, in a place called Kiliadon, which is near Cuddamach in East Mayo. His father was a weaver. His uh, mother was a local woman, and he, his father worked for a local uh, landlord. Um, a quite a benign kind of landlord, a Catholic, as it happened, a man called Frank Taff, who seems to have been, uh, you know, a very, um, you know, quite a supportive person in Rafferty's life. Uh, at the age of somewhere between five and nine, the family, there were there were eight siblings. Um, 
Raftery was one of nine. Uh, they were the family was struck by uh, smallpox, and all the children died except Raftery, uh, Anthony Raftery, the the one child that survived, and he was struck blind uh, at that age, and he was blind for the rest of his life. And um, according to tradition, Frank Taft, the landlord, uh, took a great interest in him. He, I think, he probably. Um, you know, I think he he probably liked the young this young guy who was obviously very bright and kind of you know had plenty of ideas of his own, and he arranged uh, lessons for him to play the fiddle because he, he could see that that would help him you know make a living and survive as a blind person, and then at some point uh, some point before eighteen twenty we don't know when Raftery uh, managed to move from East Mayo and end, ended up in uh, East Galway, and he spent the rest of his life up until 1835 uh, wandering um, the roads of East Galway. And he became, uh, he became, you know, relatively speaking, quite a famous person in that little world. He became and an had an ambition to become the voice of his people in a certain way, in, in, in terms of kind of, you know, Standing up for them on the polit- in the political realm as a as a poet and as a uh, a writer of verse who you know in an, in an illiterate population would have a you know would have a, a standing and and uh, you know a prestige because he would be able to kind of forge the random language of the people into this form and he would be able to express in precise and you know uh, I suppose. Uh, artistic terms uh what was bothering the people uh so you know he made a lot of radical statements about he he uh, he uh, he supported i suppose uh violent resistance at certain point to the oppression of the landlord class and the, and the landlord system he supported uh, daniel o'connell uh d- you know during a, a certain a crucial kind of election campaign in the end of the 1820s. Uh, he, he wrote a lot of stuff and he wrote one thing that is, a, is like a ribbon or like a, uh, a, like a thread through Madame Lazar. He wrote a historical poem called Shanachas Nishkeha, which was um, the story of the Irish people since the beginning of time up until around roughly the end of the 17th century. And that was a poem that was learned uh, and widely known by people in Connacht. And in a certain way, it was a kind of almost like a history book that Raftery wrote in verse to tell the people who they were, because nobody else was telling them. They didn't have a they didn't have an education system that would tell them they had they had hedge schools and so forth. But this was like gathering all the information he knew. And it wasn't all historically correct, even, but he did his best. And and it, it was he, he put it together, you know, to explain to the people who they were and to give them a sense of pride in who they were. And is that the poem that, that Mairead's father is particularly, he's, he's, he's kind of, the, the, he's particularly adept at telling and has the, the memory of that story? Yes, it is. Yes, ah. it is. That's a little, uh, you know, connection between the two books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what I found, I mean, I, I found it fascinating. As, well, first of all, I, I didn't know anything about Raftery before reading the book. And and I thought it's, it's just... Uh, it was it was a beautiful telling of that story, but also the social history that it provides was was fascinating to me, and the insight that it gave me to the um, um, 
to, to, to so many aspects of, 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 of Irish society of that time. But for instance, one of the things that um, I, well, first of all, the, the power of the poet in terms of the, the, the poet's ability to, to curse or, 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 or you know, the, the, the fear that was there in relation to, to, to what a poet might do um, to someone was, was, was extraordinary. And also a thing that, that, that I had, had, hadn't been aware of was this, this idea that um, the, the idea that you must, um, uh, whenever you would um, compliment somebody or say something, something positive, you, you must bless the the um, issue of blessing after that, or else there's a there, there's a there's a possibility that the the devil may get in, and that could have um, very negative consequences. Um, the, these beliefs that that were there among the among the the ordinary people, I mean, these were very powerful um, ways of understanding the world. You know, we might look at them now as being quite primitive, and we say, oh, well, that's that's clearly um, you know, well, that that you know, pishogri or whatever it might be, but but it it was really really significant and powerful for those people. Yeah, it was, and um, I found out recently that uh, that that idea that you know, if you praise somebody, that you should you should you know invoke God's blessing in case that that particular talent that you have praised would in somebody taken away. Apparently, there's a very similar uh, use of 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 uh, uh, blessing in 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 the Arabic world, so it's it's kind of extraordinary how those little kind of tropes of of, of belief are you know are global, uh, and uh, that's that's kind of what's really interesting about uh, an oral tradition is that it's not it's not just about a particular corner of Ireland. You will find when you kind of dig down is that it's actually it's a reflection of of human life and a much on a much broader scale, uh, and that interests me. Well, it, it, it's it's fascinating to me because I've been reading a book recently, which just is, is uh, called "The Expectation Effect," which has been looking at the science of of a lot of this, and apparently there, there is this really significant connection now between. You know what we it's it's he talks you know I suppose it starts with the the placebo effect and how the placebo effect can actually have a a, a physiological effect in the body, but the same thing applies in relation to beliefs and 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 uh, the, the the book explores how this happened in particularly in relation to a community from Laos I think who moved to um to the United States and a lot of them were dying in, inexplicably um young men were dying um and. And it, it, it turned out it was because of a belief they had in relation to a particular spirit that they believed was coming at, coming to them in the night, and they would they would they would they would literally die of their hearts would fail uh, in their sleep, and it. But the the reason that this problem was occurring was they didn't have access to their shaman and their particular you know rights that they would have had to protect them from this in their. Uh, in their indigenous um, communities, and when they reintroduced them in in, in their in their communities in the United States, th- this stopped happening. So it was actually their it was their belief system that was causing this physiological thing to happen in in their bodies, and it just struck me when I was reading this, and I was then reminded of the both the cursing and the 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 blessing in Mishraftri. How you know maybe that wasn't just. Uh, pure pishogri. Maybe there was some kind of effect um, that was happening as a result, and 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 it also made me think about the cures that you mentioned. And I mean, I suppose because I, I, I thought it was particularly poignant when you mentioned when you just the way you described when um, when the family were struck by the smallpox. It was a smallpox, I think. It would yes. have been yes, the, it was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and how 
you know, this all that they would have had would have been some some maybe some 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 herbal um, remedy or cures, um, and you know, it just seemed it seemed desperately um, pitiful that this 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 was all that was there. But I wonder the extent to which, you know those belief in those cures i wonder the extent to which a, a placebo effect or something might have been in that yeah it's it's possible it's possible there were certain um but those those i mean those cures those those incantations uh they're very much part of the of the the oral tradition here in Connemara. you know they would still you know they're very well recorded and and um you know they're available there in the in in in, in the you know, collected folklore. And um yeah, I made an album a few years ago. Uh I've made I've made a few um projects of uh traditional kind of spoken word material from the from the oral tradition for children, one called Gogoli Gog, which was became very popular. And um while we were doing that, the my musical partner John Ryan, who's worked on me with me in a lot of different projects, he he made the suggestion. Wouldn't it be interesting to do something like this for adults? You know, if you could find some sort of spoken word material, whatever it is. I said I don't even know if it exists, but but something like that. And then we could, you we could make another project like this, and and I could you know build kind of soundscapes behind the the voices, which would have have a different kind of style, a more an adult friendly kind of style. And we did that. We we made this um, book and album called A Year. Uh, voices and verse from the edge of the world, and and we included some of those traditional incantations, which w- would never have been presented in a kind of a, a performative way like we did on on our album. You know, it, they would have been used as as traditional um, traditional kind of healing, um, you know, chants or whatever. But uh, I just found it when I found these pieces of text you know these things things that people used to recite or whatever i just found that some of the some of the lines uh, were just very poetic and 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 there was a beauty to them and uh, i just wanted to do something with that to kind of to to bring them back to give them a new life as it were to give them uh, to so that they would have a life not just you know in some library and some folklore collection in dublin but that they would be given voice so that you could play them on the radio or you could listen to them in your car or whatever, so that they would, you know, that they would again be kind of, you know, brought back into, into, into existence in, in a new way. Well, well, that continuation of that tradition is powerful. Tech. Um, if, if we could just to, to maybe, as we come to the end of the, the conversation, um, one of the things that I, um, I mean, first of all, I think your contribution to the, uh, to the language, certainly for me as a learner, has been it's been an extraordinary one and very very powerful, and and so welcome, um and um and 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 I and I love the, the the commitment you've made to doing that because it's if you like adding to the I mean there's a problem I think with 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 the language on a certain level in that you have you know people might say oh well you know there's no point in uh, I spoke to somebody previously who wrote and they said decided to publish in English because the market is so small in Irish and you know it's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy if if if, if once it, if it isn't there that, that you don't have the, the readers to come to it but um from what I'm hearing from you I mean in, in terms of your experience in publishing and in terms of your own experience in writing I mean it's it's quite a positive story and there's quite a good news story and there's grounds for optimism there 
But what I have heard from speaking to others is that they say, well, look, you know, I don't have any fear of the language. I think the language will take care of itself or, you know, that, that, that will happen. But the, the big fear they have is of the Gwaeltacht and that they don't see that the survival of the Gwaeltacht is, is or that's a big, big, big area of concern. Um, what are your thoughts around that? You're somebody who's who's moved back. You lived in the Gwaeltacht now for, for many, many years, raised, raised your family there. I mean, what is your sense of that aspect of it, uh, the language generally, and 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 the Gwaeltacht, and, and and how are they, how are how are they interlinked? Well, I think the Gwaeltacht now, the context of the Gwaeltacht now is a globalized culture, and we have, you know, the Gwaeltacht has probably the most formidable kind of um, opponent, as it were, our most formidable cultural competition on the planet. That is the English language. Uh, because you know, almost like much bigger, much bigger um, languages in terms of you know critical mass of, of native speakers, monolingual native speakers, like say French, for example. I mean, the the language, the the speech of the young in French is is just kind of is just dotted with English words. Um, I mean, and that is true of so many languages all over the world. So English at the moment, uh, at this at this point. Uh, is is really uh, very dominant. So it's it's a particularly difficult, um, you know, um, challenge for a small language community uh, and small language communities like the Gaeltacht um, areas to to survive in, in in the face of all that. And also the young, they're not so kind of rooted in their own geographical area as they were, I mean, a lot of the young spend their lives on, on Instagram and Snapchat and whatever you're having. And their lives are not, uh, their lives are much more globalized and their, their connections are much more globalized. Now it, that it has had in some ways a, a very positive effect on the Irish language. I can see in terms of say, my own work in writing and and publishing, for example, the fact that we can get our message out through through the social media, um, you know, we can we can connect with with an audience in a way that you know you'd have to sit around and wait for somebody to write about your book in the newspaper one time, and that's still important. But it, there are all these other ways of getting your your story out to people, like like this podcast, you know. Uh, but also social media that everybody can can instigate their own kind of message and, and send it out into the world and 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 you can you know you can collect an audience for it. But in terms of of the survival of a of a of a small population, I think it is a big challenge, and it's also got to the point where everybody has to make the decision because everybody now has the level of English where they could they could you know comfortably just switch as happened in my own part of County Mayo and just kind of not speak Irish anymore or gradually, you know, over a generation or two, you know, stop speaking it. And I can see that that could happen in Connemara. I can see that it, it's uh, it's well advanced in West Kerry from my wife is from. Um, and I, I would have a concern, certainly. And I, and I, I don't think it's... Uh, it's uh, useful to, kind of, you know, to uh, avert... You know my gaze on that. I mean, I think that that's something that could happen. There are there are interesting things happening though. Like here in Connemara, there's a, a, a fantastic organisation called Tishmahori Nguelta. The 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 parents of the Gaeltacht was set up some years ago by 
uh, voluntary organization and it now has a, you know, it's a well-funded organization now with a, with a you know a full-time staff and they are their interventions are really wonderful you know they 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 have a whole program events for families and for they've done a lot about like books and literacy and they have all sorts of kind of cultural events and they're just they've just really given given the language a lot of support and uh, that the whole language planning kind of projects that are going on i can see you know the 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 positive uh, effects of those things there are a lot more there are more kind of um opportunities in especially in the cultural realm now to interact you know besides like i mean the locals speak irish in the, in, in in the shops you know but you will find even that you find when you go into a shop say in spittle say i would know some of the young people i'd remember them from when my kids were younger and so forth and they would speak irish to me happily but they would speak english to each other behind the counter you know so you see that that's you know and i'm not judging that you know but but it's a, but it's a you know it's it's a pattern you know um so they have the choice those young people what what are they going to do with this uh, language in which they are you know pretty fluent or very fluent some of them um, some of them are going to stick at it. Some of them are going to, you know, make that choice and, and others aren't, you know. And um, so uh, it's hard to know, you know, where, where Connemara will be in 30 years. Um, I think there still will be, certainly will be Irish spoken and there will be a certain, certainly there will be, a you know, a, um, consciousness that that it's 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 a part of, of Connemara life but it's certainly not as intense as it was even today as it was 30 years ago there's, there, there's no doubt about that but it's uh, you have much less you have much fewer people who are more comfortable speaking Irish than English we'll put it that way and that's a kind of a that's a staging post or it could be a staging post on the way to you know, abandoning it completely. I don't think it will be abandoned in 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 Connemara, but I think that it is uh, certainly it's a challenge to keep it going. But I'm, you know, I'm an optimist, and I'm sticking to my guns, and um, I see a lot of positive things as well. Wonderful. What could I ask you finally then, just to, to bring it all together? And, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us here, and your background, your philosophy, and your experience in relation to the language. But when I when I listen to you, you you, you have somebody who started off coming from an English speaking area, obviously with the Hiberno English kind of Irish was there a couple of generations ago, but English there was no irish at home shall we say mm-hmm. and, and and you've now moved to a point where you're living in the, you've dedicated your life to so many aspects of the language and, and writing in the language creating music in the language publishing in the language what is your why why have you why 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 were you motivated to do that and what is your uh, reason for the, the the importance of of irish in your life well i suppose um i find that Irish connects me in uh, in a profound way to the people that have gone before me. Um, I think that that's you know in in you know in, in I, I'm kind of interested in you know in the religions of the world. You know, and w- one of the things that religions do is that it connects an individual to the to a, a, his or her ancestors, and you have that kind of sense of this of that they're an individual. Uh, who comes from a you know a long line of individuals and that, that there will hopefully be a long line of individuals that will you know keep going and marching into the future and 
it kind of it kind of gives me that rootedness in a certain way, and it gives me a sense of uh, of my people and my own little part in that. And even even like the place names, I, I love traveling around Ireland. Uh, I love traveling around the world, but when I'm in Ireland, I love traveling around. And uh, especially if I'm in an unfamiliar place, you will find that in certain parts of the of the country that there'll be a whole bunch of of uh, place names with that with you know particular words like up in the uh, up in the uh, uh, border areas, for example. The, the, I'm from Ahamore in County Mayo, but there are a lot of Aha, which means it's it's it's, in, it's kind of a literary word word now for a field. So you have a lot of those Aha all over Cavan and Monaghan. Or in Donegal, you have Mean, which means like a like a you know a fertile little patch of land in the mountains. Uh, and all those little things, and they all have, they all have these kind of interesting images in them. Like there's a place in outside Manhattan town called Achanished, which may mean the field of the jewels. And I, I just like maybe that's not what it means, but I, I, I think it probably does mean that. That's really kind of interesting to me. You know, it's kind of like there's a poem in that, or there's a song in that, or something. There's a place outside Killybegs called Gortnamard. Which means the field of the bards, you know, and like, you know, you're driving by and say, who are the bards? Like, why do they have a field? You know, why was it there? You know, uh, or there's a place near where I grew up in in Kaltimach called Srian Nigleirach, which is like, it's like you know the the a, a quarter, you know, in Paris, you know, like the quartier, and you'd have that in Irish, in English, you know, the quarter, the the like Ancharuru is the kind of the red quarter, you know. You also have a third that that. So in certain places you have Antrian, Antrian Law is the third, the middle third. But there's a place called Trian Niglera. It's called Three Niglera now in English, Three Niglera, which means nothing. But in Irish it's Trian Niglera, which is the third of the clerks. And you'd say, who are those clerks? And why were they up there halfway up the mountain, you know? Uh, so it's those kind of, it's those like little questions that the landscape kind of poses at me as I, you know, ramble around and I'm looking at these place names. There's, it, it's just it's a kind of a lovely, it's it's poetry, I think, you know. Uh, that's my view of it. And it, it, it's all that kind of, that just extra kind of awareness of Ireland that you get from from speaking Irish, you know, um, uh, that that I love. And, and I suppose that that's something that I wanted to, I wanted to always express that enthusiasm uh, in terms of uh, what I've written and, and what I've shared. And I also, because I just love the texture of the language, it's kind of like, you know, writing in Irish, it's kind of like, it's just like, you know, write, you know, painting in oil as opposed to painting in acrylic or, you know, it's just like, it's, it has a texture, it has a feel, it's a different thing. It's a different sound, different way of co- constructing sentences. And just from an artistic point of view, I like it, you know, it's like being a weaver as opposed to being, um, you know, something else, you know. Um, so that's kind of, it's that's that's my connection with it, um, and uh, it has been a very enriching uh, connection. And I suppose I put it in the context of loving loving languages and also, you know, speaking other languages as well, and and just seeing it as part of the kind of the the tapestry of of culture in Europe as well. I mean, I'm very interested. I, I've always felt that my my 
my work as an Irish speaker and writer is much an expression of my European identity as it is of my Irish identity. And that's a really important idea for me uh, because Europe is a continent, a patchwork of languages and cultures and voices and songs and all that stuff. And uh, that makes it a very interesting part of the planet, in my view. And Irish is very much part of that interestedness, if that's a word. It's a beautiful word. Uh, and, and it's a beautiful way to round out this conversation, because I think oftentimes when people speak about Irish, it, it, it can come from, well, at least can, it can be interpreted or spoken about in an insular kind of closed kind of way. But I think the 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 open um, European international way in which you understand it as part of the, the languages of the world is absolutely beautiful. And thank you so much for your contribution to that and, 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 and for enabling people like me who are trying to to learn the language um providing us with with such wonderful material in which to uh, enjoy it ahaig akara garv mila mahagat vinme ansalt asan scale rain tulin berbua agus banatakara garv mila magatain be be warm pleasure about kind lat tagus garv mila magat vinjash all mushkela rinsta Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I would really appreciate your feedback and would be eternally grateful if you would follow, rate and review the show. Please also be sure to sign up at thelanguagequestion.com forward slash resources to get your free valuable learning resources and to stay up to date with upcoming episodes, guests and to receive exclusive content. Slán tamar.